0: Hi everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're taking a slight detour from the yoga, the birth, the babies, and we're going to talk about finances, how we finance having the yoga, the birth, and the baby. So we have Amy Brackett here to speak with us a little bit about that world of finances. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Amy Brackett, CFA, is a Senior Vice President at the Solaris Group, a specialized wealth management and investment consulting firm which manages money for individuals, families, and nonprofit institutions. Amy is involved in all aspects of the client's relationship, including asset allocation and management selection, and is a member of the Solaris Investment Committee. Amy serves on several boards and finance committees, including the board of Bowery Babes, a group for moms living in downtown New York City. She also writes articles on personal finance topics related to families at SavvyParents.com. Amy lives in Manhattan with her husband and two children. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm so glad that you are spending some time speaking with my community about this because we talk so much about the, the pregnancy and the birth, but the aftermath, even in motherhood, could be a little overwhelming about how expensive children are. And I know you and I are just speaking about this. So I just want to read this quote and you can correct me for um, the New York area but in my research I found that according to the US Department of Agriculture it will cost a middle income couple slightly more than $245,000 to raise a child born in 2013 to the age of 18 and that does not include college. Did you change did you find anything more about that? Yeah, so that's
1: exactly right. I mean that's on average and if you're living in a high cost area like New York or California Um, It can actually be a lot more than that. I've I've seen (laughs) estimates of, you know, four or five hundred thousand and obviously even more if you um, end up doing private school. And as you said, that's that doesn't even include college. So um, it's definitely not cheap raising a family. (laughs) But actually, the the good news that the article does talk about is there's some scale. So um, when you have a second or if you have a third, um, you know, things can be reused, toys, clothing, um, you find ways to save, exactly. But it's, it's uh, definitely not cheap
0: at all. Well, before so my head is spinning from that. So before we get into how we can figure out how to raise our children with this uh, huge expense, I'd just love to hear a little bit about what brought you to this line of work. Sure. So after graduating
1: from college, I worked in investment banking and then I spent several years in equity research uh, where I picked stocks in the retail and apparel industry. And while I enjoyed the work, I was always interested in working more with individual clients as opposed to corporations. Um, And I also really wanted to find a way to combine my financial background and my interest in behavioral psychology, which is something I studied in college as well. And that's really what wealth management is. It's the intersection of psychology and finance. Uh, Managing money is in many ways a practice about how clients feel about their money and wealth. And we, we each have our own relationship with money, and it's often framed in childhood. So regardless of how much someone earns or how much they've saved, their own upbringing and their parents' attitude towards money will have a huge impact in how they think about money and investing and other financial topics. Um, so in 2007, I joined the Solaris Group, which is where I am today. So I've been here um, a little over 10 years, and I work with individuals and families to manage their investment portfolios and provide financial guidance on a range of issues.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. As you were saying that, I'm thinking, what have I done already to influence my kids' view of money? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I've set them on a good path. They pick up a lot. You'd be surprised what they pick up. <laughs> another, another piece of guilt. But one thing that I don't—I'm guessing—hopefully, a lot of parents do is like I've actually talked to my kids and tell me if this is a, a good thing to do about spending. Um, like I'm, I go into stores, and I know you have two kids, and my son wants everything, and my daughter always wants buy me this, buy me this. And we talk about you know not. Overly spending, you know, spending what we have and and saving for the future. So hopefully that's starting to plant some seeds. Is that a good way to approach this?
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think one thing that I use that I'm actually shocked at how well it works is um, the wish list. And so anytime we go into a store, it's like I want this, I want that, and so I say that's great. Put it on your wish list, and you can. I actually have an Amazon wish list, but you could write it down or have your child write it down and they can add to it throughout the year. And, you know, when it gets close to a birthday or a holiday, you can kind of go through it with them. And I think it's a great exercise for them to realize that they can't get everything they want the second they want it. Um, and then the other tool that can work well with ki- you know, kids who are a little bit older, maybe five or six and above, is doing an allowance.
0: Oh, yes, and, we do that. Yeah. And we have so two think, jars. We have a savings jar and a spending jar. So we actually have four, well, it's a it's a four-in-one kind of bank.
1: Oh, okay. Um, Enlighten me. So, <laughs> yeah, So they, th- these are popular now. You can go on Amazon and, you know, there's a number of these. But um, it's save, spend, invest, and donate. Invest is still very obscure for my five-year-old, but um, we're working on it. And um, But save and spend and, and donate, I think kids can really relate to. And so that's been a great tool. And just recently um, she accumulated enough that we couldn't fit anything else in, you know, the save and the spend. And so we picked out a few books and she's learning to read now. And so it was really exciting for her to be able to kind of go through the process and have a little bit more ownership of,
0: you know, how she's spending her money. I love that. I'm going to go get two more jars. The other day, my son, he he had accumulated up to a 20 and he wanted to get something, but he said, I don't want to break my 20. (laughs) I can relate. All right. So enough about the older kids. Let's go more about the parents. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you see new parents do in terms of their finances? Sure. So I
1: think the biggest mistake I see from new parents and actually not so new parents as well is that they ignore their finances. Um, And life is busy. And once you have a child or multiple children in the picture, it gets even busier. So I think it's easy to kind of push that aside. Um, I remember when I was pregnant with my first, I spent hours researching strollers and cribs and car seats, sleep sacks, pumps, bottles, baby monitors, you name it. And that was all before she was born. Um, And then the baby arrives and there's, you know, the constant worries of, are they eating enough, sleeping enough, too much? How do I swaddle this baby? And so not surprisingly, you know, I think a lot of um, conversations around financial planning get pushed aside actually at the time that parents really need it most. Um, It's also a time that parents are forced to make really major decisions about jobs in those early weeks or months without very often kind of going through the numbers and thinking more long-term. And, you know, as you know, the U.S. has no federal paid parental leave policy. So many women are going back to work with when their baby is just weeks or months old and just, you know, accumulating whatever leave or vacation time they can. Um, And we all know how expensive childcare is. And oftentimes, um, you know, parents to be start to do the research and right away decide, you know, it's not economically feasible and, and one parent must leave the workforce um very often the mom um so about 40% of married mothers with a child under age 6 are not currently in the workforce um sometimes temporarily sometimes permanently but it can have a major um impact you know both emotionally um and then of course financially um so on the emotional side, it's not always easy um, to go from a successful, busy career to being a baby's full-time caregiver, and some parents really connect with those early stages um, and find taking time off to be very rewarding. Um, and I think for others, working outside the home helps maintain a sense of balance and well-being, and these parents might even feel the bond more to take time off as their kids get older and can interact and communicate Um, in new ways. And then on the financial side, you know, there's the obvious impact of the years off from work themselves, um, but then there's also the long-term earnings power. So, you know, one study um, done by the Institute for Women's Policy Research showed that a woman's earnings generally took a 30% dive after she had been out of the workforce for two or three years. And so, you know, if you're in your 30s and 40s, um, that can really have a dramatic impact longer term on your finances. So um, it can be really helpful sometimes to work with a financial advisor to determine what your budget will allow and, and also how to manage your finances through the transition to parenthood.
0: One of my friends, uh, she has a six-year-old and a three-year-old and she's ready to go back to work, but she's actually finding it's really hard to get a job, even an interview with a six year gap. I'm guessing that's something women. that's
1: true. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some people I know have been able to do at least some sort of work, whether it was, you know, kind of volunteer work or, um, consulting assignments here and there just to keep you know, even just to keep up with some of their connections and keep their foot in the door, but it, it's really tough. Sick of being upsold at gyms?
0: So speaking of childcare, so from my experience of it in New York City um, and now in in New Jersey, it is crazy expensive. Um, Do you have any data on the basic budget for someone should plan for those early years? Sure. So, you know, as you said, it's often a
1: family's largest expense after their mortgage or rent and um, probably in some cases even more than that. Um, So care.com does a survey and uh, 54% of families spend more than 10% of their annual household income on childcare. And one in five families, so 20%, are spending a quarter of their income on childcare per year. I know in New York City, where, where I live, um, the average cost of daycare is often, you know, 20000 or more than that uh, per year. Nannies, you know, f- full-time can be forty-five or $50,000. Um, and then sometimes, in, you know, you, also have in the early years, preschool, which might only be part of the day. So you have these few years at the beginning, especially if you have, you know, another child where you might get hit with both the nanny cost and the preschool costs at once. So yeah, that was a reality.
0: <laughs> we yeah. had a nanny and preschool, um, private preschool. And now, fortunately, my son's in public yeah, public first grade, and we have one more year of preschool. But it takes an enormous sum of our our income just to cover what our kids need. It's crazy. It, uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think until they're like you said, if until they're in you know kindergarten and it's full day, uh, those first few years are by far you know the. Hardest in terms of childcare and the expense. I've seen some creative ways of people doing it. Um, You know, so one thing to think about is doing a nanny share with another family, Um, especially if the kids are close in age, it can actually be really nice for the kids. Um, And then, of course, you know, that reduces the costs. One friend of mine uh, went back to work four days a week, 10 hours a day instead of her usual five days a week. And so she was able to save that extra day of daycare. Um, and then there's a lot of people who might be able to have family help a couple of days a week, you know, and that also can help cut down the costs. If you have a nanny the other days.
0: That's great. I mean, so it doesn't have to, so new parents or pregnant people listening to this don't have to feel overwhelmed that they can get creative. That's great. So in terms of, pl- uh, planning financial goals for post baby, what are some areas that new parents should consider and focus on? So I
1: think, you know, conversations around budgets and financial planning are important, particularly when you have kids in the mix. And it's a great idea to periodically sit down with your partner and review your finances together. So I know that, you know, most people hear the word budget and they cringe and they would rather do anything but that. But it's it's less about, you know, a budget, the strict budget. It's really more, I think, about being aware of your annual income and how that compares to your expenses. And so even just you know, going through an annual credit card statement, having an idea broadly by category what you're spending, and then at the end of the year, are you are you saving money? Are you spending more than you're making? But just you know, kind of going through that exercise. Um, there's programs like Mint.com that can be helpful. Um, I think credit card statement, credit card annual summaries are, are helpful as well. But really, just having um, a sense of how you're doing, and if you think of it like your health, you know, how you need regular checkups with your doctor, your family's financial health is really the same way. Um, The other thing I would say is very often the baby's arrival coincides with A lot of other expenses, so uh, the need for more space is a big one as well. Um, And even though there's very creative solutions, so you know, I've seen babies in closets and all over the place, wherever they'll fit. But many times, parents often um, are looking for a new home or spending money on to rent a larger apartment. Uh, They might need to buy a car. Diapers are a big expense. So there's uh, a statistic I saw recently: the average baby uses more than twenty seven hundred diapers in the first year alone. Uh so that, you know, is five or six hundred uh for diapers and then, you know, there's all the other expenses that come along with the baby. So there's a lot of expenses, you know, really hitting at once, uh, especially in that first year.
0: Yeah, I remember my sister in law, uh, at my son's Bris, talk about a great time, asked me, she's like, So financially, how are you? And I'm like, oh we're good. And then I sat down like a year later and be like, oh my God, this took a massive chunk out of our savings. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit surprising. So is there a rule of thumb for how much someone should be thinking about saving?
1: So there, there's a lot of rules of thumb out there. It
0: depends who you ask. All right, let's like, go through like, several like, thumbs.
1: So this is actually, right. Like with parenting, you ask, you know, two people, you get 10 answers. But um, so, you know, one rule it, that I've seen is the 50, 30, 20 method. So the idea here is you put aside 50% of your um, earnings for your needs, so things like housing, utilities, groceries, healthcare. The next 30% goes towards your wants, so um, a dinner out, a concert, a, a vacation. And then the last 20% goes towards savings. So that would include any retirement savings in a 401k college savings. I don't think you need to stress if you can't get to 20%, especially in those early years, um, you're probably going to be spending a lot more on that need category, but you know, anything you can save is, is better than nothing. Um, and then on the savings piece, you know, it's not just saving, but it's how you save the money. I think that's so important and, and sometimes overlooked. So a lot of people save money, which is great, but they keep major amounts of cash. Sometimes, you know, all their net worth really minus real estate in a checking account. And while it is necessary to have money for monthly expenses and you want a safety net, the cash in a checking account is usually earning zero um, or practically zero, especially with interest rates where they are today. So investing some of your savings, particularly longer term money, like retirement money that you can afford to sustain some of the ups and downs of the market can make all the difference in you know figuring out when you can afford to retire and things like that. Um, and if you look at the stock market and, and even the bond market, they can be very volatile from year to year. But Longer term, the fluctuations smooth out. So if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you can afford to have a little bit of the risk that, you know, someone who is retired and on a fixed income can't. Um, last 90 or so years, a portfolio that was allocated – about sixty percent, sixty percent in stocks and forty percent in bonds would have returned close to ten percent a year, and that accounts for periods like the Great Depression and the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Um, you know, the worst period, the worst twenty year period, would have been four and a half percent a year. The best twenty year period would have been over fifteen percent per year. So, it just goes to show you, you know, the earlier you start saving, investing the better um, and time really is on your side.
0: So if someone's hearing this and they haven't really invested, they do have most of their money in a checking account. What would be the first steps to do so?
1: I think meeting with an advisor can be helpful and just figuring out, you know, sometimes people actually, you know, come to me and they Um, They have accounts all over the place. They might have um, cash in a checking account. They might have a current 401k, an old 401k, you know, maybe their spouse has a few accounts. And I think the first step really is figuring out what you have, which kind of sounds obvious, but um, sometimes people don't, you know, really know how the money is allocated that you start a job, you check the box, you know in HR the first day of how you want your retirement money invested and you never look at it again. So I think the first step is kind of figuring out what you have and then where you should be, um, and what your goals are and how you get there. Um, you know, I think finances generally can be a source of stress for people. And so they tend to avoid, uh, looking at statements or, um, you know, being involved kind of day to day, um, investing lingo certainly can be confusing and brokerage statements are notoriously bad at providing even basic information. Like, you know, what do I own and how have my investments done? And should I be happy with this? How does it compare to the market or other similar portfolios? So, um, you want, you want to find someone who can be transparent and, um, you know, who you relate to. Some of it is just finding a good fit, um, and just, you know, finding someone who can kind of help you go through what you have, what your goals are and, and create some kind of financial peace of mind.
0: That's important. I mean, all that, it's kind of reminds me of like when I tell my students about finding a care provider, you need to be able to trust that person. Um, I've had the same financial advisor for years. It's of course the one my mom, um, uses, and it's so great because I can call her up and ask her questions and she breaks it down for me so that I understand it because I'm not certainly savvy on what's going on necessarily with all the stocks and mutual funds. But if I have a question, she's really available. So I think that's important that you want a financial advisor that you can trust and that can break it down and speak, speak about things easily, which brings me to college because I had just been talking to my financial advisor about college for my kids. And she ran some numbers, which literally made me choke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so we set up, um, very early, basically right when they were born, a fund for my son, a fund for my daughter, and we've been adding to it monthly. It just comes out of our checking account. And we, she did some projections of a state school and a private school. And I'm pretty sure a state school, if I remember correctly, in about 15, 16 years was going to be over 200,000 for a state School. Um and then a private was gonna be over four, maybe four fifty. Uh do you have thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's not cheap and um educational costs have just been rising so fast, you know, I think certainly faster than incomes in other areas and um and it's tough. Um the one thing I would say is, you know, f- you referenced setting up plans for your kids, um, which I assume is a five twenty-nine plan. Um, but that can be a great way to save for college. So what a 529 plan is, is it's a plan operated by a state or educational institution, and it's designed to help families set aside funds for college costs. Uh, nearly every state has at least one type of plan available, and the plans might differ a little bit from state to state. There's um, there's a prepaid plan where you can prepay all or part of the costs of an in-state public college. Um, and then that value can be converted if you end up going out of state or, or to a private school. But the one that people most often opt for is is just a um, a general five twenty nine savings plan. And this works just like a four hundred one k or an IRA in the sense that you know, like you said, each month you can set it and forget it, and you put a certain amount in, and it's invested in mutual funds you select when you sign up, how aggressive or conservative you want to be, um, and then that account grows over time. And um, there's a few benefits to a 529 plan. One is that earnings grow without federal taxes, and they're not taxed when the money is taken out to pay for college. So that you know that's helpful from an investment perspective. And then in addition to the federal savings, over 30 states currently offer a full or partial tax deduction for 529 plan contributions.
0: Are there um, other e- types of plans besides
1: the 529? There are, um, but you're and, that's and of course you can. Best. Yeah, I mean, you can also you know say, just save money in your account and use that. Um, but I think you know if you the thing with 529s is they have to be used for you know certain educational expenses, which. There's a little bit of latitude in that. You can use it for grad school and books and all that, but it has to be used for educational expenses as opposed to, you know, just saving money in a regular bank or investment account. But there there are tax benefits. Um, I think, you know, what I tell people is don't worry about funding your kids, you know, four years of college for X many kids. Um, But it's, you know, even just to get a little bit of a head start because it, is expensive, and you know many families have more than one child in college, at either at the same time or back to back. So it's a great way just to get a jump start. And you know we just talked about the time value of money, but if you can just put a little bit in, set it up when your child is born or where they're young, and you know maybe other family members are interested in contributing a little bit. It's it's just a great way to get a jump start on saving for college. Um, even if you only put in, let's say a hundred dollars a month, if you start when your baby's born and the account is earning 7% a year, that's about 45,000, you know, 18 years from now when your child starts college. So, you know, it's probably only one year of private college or two years of a state school at best because um, costs are going up, but it at least gets you started and um, allows, you know, some money to grow in a tax-advantaged way.
0: Well, that kind of brings me to the idea of college and then also retirement. So with people having babies later in life, it looks like for a lot of families, the parents might be maybe only five, 10, 15 years away from retirement while their child's in college. How do you plan for both? Yeah. I'm glad you asked about this. Um, so clearly these are both major life events that you want to
1: save for, but the difference is that you can borrow for college, but you cannot borrow money for retirement. You're, You're much better off having enough funds in your retirement account and not putting everything that you can save um, into a 529, which, as I said, has to be used for educational expenses in order to have that favorable tax treatment.
0: But what happens if the child doesn't go to college? So you
1: can take it out, but you lose the tax advantages that you already gained. Um, So there's a little bit of an impact when you take out the money. Um, the other thing is colleges, when they're looking at, you know, if you're applying for financial aid, when they're looking to see how much you have, I mean, there's a, num- there's a whole formula um, that they use, but they exclude money in your retirement accounts when they're, you know, looking to see how much money you have saved. So if you have a lot of money socked away in an IRA or in a 401k account for retirement that's protected. And, you know, that's money that you'll really need when you retire. So that's important to remember. Colleges also weigh assets differently when they're determining um, federal aid eligibility. So, you know, let's say your child, the student has money um, in their account. Colleges will expect them to pay, you know, to use a bigger chunk of that. So let's say 20% of the student's assets can be used to pay for college, but only depending on income, let's say three to 5% or so of a parent's assets. And that would exclude money they have in retirement accounts.
0: Okay. So how much should then a parent think about putting aside for retirement? It's as much
1: as you can. (laughs) I mean, the more, the better. Um, there, you know, there's online calculators you could use, or you could talk to a financial advisor who can help you run numbers. Um, you can, you know, look at kind of how much, you you know, it's, there's a lot of factors. It's how much you have already. If you're 45 and you haven't saved a penny, you'll have to save a lot more than someone who's, you know, 30 and, and maybe has started saving a little bit. Um, but there, there's good calculators, sort of garbage and garbage out. So if, <laughs> the assumptions aren't right. Um, you know, it's only worth so much, but it can be a good guide to figuring out, you know, how much you have already. Are you, um, you know, what is your income? Are you adding money to your portfolio and your savings every year? In which case maybe you can, you know, put a little bit less into your retirement account. Um, but I would say the earlier you can start, the better, even if it's just a little bit at first and then, you know, have goals of increasing it. The other thing is if your company has any sort of matching program with the 401k plan, definitely, definitely put in as much as you need to to get that. So sometimes companies will say um, for the first 3% you put into the 401k will match it dollar to dollar And then after that, you know, you can put in as much as you want, but we're not going to match it. And so it's free money. Like, even if you're struggling, you know, that 3% is still important because you're suddenly really getting 6% in the account. So that's something to look out for as well.
0: These are all great tips. So how much do you suggest someone has an emergency fund? So they've got, you know, some money aside for retirement, a little bit aside for the kids, but then I'm guessing we should put away some cash for an emergency fund.
1: Yes, definitely, definitely want an emergency fund. Um, so one statistic I saw, which I couldn't believe, but only half of Americans can afford an emergency costing four hundred dollars, and that's a pretty scary figure when you think about it. Um, how many unexpected things come up, and you know, half of half of our country can't afford four hundred dollars. A lot of financial experts recommend somewhere between three and nine months of living expenses in an emergency fund. I think for a family with kids, particularly if it's a one-income family, you want to be on the high end of that range, if not above, so you know, more than nine months, maybe a year or two, um, to just to make sure you're prepared for either a job loss or any unexpected expense.
0: But that's huge. A lot of people are really going paycheck to paycheck and then saying, put aside, don't touch, don't even look at an emergency fund of one or two years. That's a huge amount. It is. I mean, if you, you know, if you have nothing
1: saved, you know, just getting to three months is great and you can go from there. I think that, um, and if you have, you know, more, a lot more than that, you can think about, you know, that's a good opportunity to, you know, invest some of it. So You'll you'll want a certain amount of cash. Everyone kind of has that amount in their mind of what they want in their checking account, just to sleep well at night and to know that the money's there if you need it. Um, but as long as you're in liquid investments, so you know, like stocks or mutual funds or ETFs, they're all liquid. You can sell them. You know, granted, it might be not the price you want, but you can sell it at any point, and they're generally one day settlement, meaning you have, you know, you can sell a fund and have the money the next day. And so I think it's, you want to have enough cash where you can pay your bills and you have a little bit of a cushion, but I also think there's a risk in, you know, having several years of, uh, of money sitting in an account, not earning anything. Mm -hmm. Um, the trick is really keeping it liquid. So things like hedge funds or other partnerships generally have much longer lockups or only, in frequent periods where you can take your money out. So, you know, I wouldn't count that obviously in an emergency fund, but if you're in mutual funds, a mix of, you know, more stock oriented funds and more bond oriented funds, if you need that money to pay for something, you're buying a house or, you know, you have some expense, um, that money is available as well.
0: Yeah. Especially we just bought a house recently and it surprised me about, um, Expenses, you know. I had an apartment in Manhattan for years, and we had an amazing super. So when things came up, Clyde fixed yep, it. We're now, spoiled as well. I know. And now the other day, I was trying to open a window, and I'm like, I can't open it. I better call. I'm like, oh me? I have to call me. I'm the one that fixes it. So I think um, housing is, you know, for a lot of America, that's a big deal about you know emergency funds. So let's switch a little bit to something that I hadn't even thought of until I had kids tips for estate planning and wills. And I took out life insurance. My husband took out life insurance. Never thought of that before kids.
1: Yeah. So I'm glad you brought this up because estate planning and wills are so important once you have kids and, and life insurance as well. Uh, you know, some people buy life insurance before they have kids, which is great. Um, but especially when you have kids, it's something to think about and, and you might want to you know, evaluate how much you have, if you have it already. And if that seems like enough, um, to provide for your kids or your spouse, if something were to happen to you, one thing, if you're, if you're buying insurance, just to be aware of is if you're currently pregnant, some companies will refuse to provide new coverage, or they might provide coverage at a crazy high cost to require, um, more in-depth medical screening. So that's just something to think about. And if that's the case, then, you know, wait until the baby's here and then, you know, then go through the process of taking out a new policy. Um, but there's a number of reasons why parents with young kids should have an estate plan done. And it's, it, it goes even beyond who will receive your assets, which I think is what jumps to a lot of people's minds without a will um, that designates a guardian for your kids, if something were to happen to you, the question of who will raise your kids will be decided by a judge. So someone who doesn't know your kids at all, doesn't know how you would want them raised. So having a guardianship provision in your will allows you to say exactly who you think um, and who you're partner thinks is the best person to take care of your kids. In addition to a will, uh, most parents with kids under the age of 18 should have a trust in place, and this isn't something just for the super wealthy. Um, Assets left to children directly must be held in court-supervised accounts, and these require regular accounting of the money and how it was used. This information then is filed with a court. It's all public record. So anyone can see it. Um, your child, your children can be more vulnerable to predators or identity theft. So that's also something to consider, even if you don't have huge sums of money. Um, also with the trust, it, it prevents your children from having unrestricted access to their inheritance at age 18. So Um, You can specify exactly when you want your kids to get, you know, inheritance, how much. Some people will stagger it and do different amounts at different ages. But, you know, the parents can really decide what makes sense for their family as opposed to it going right to the kids and then, um, you know, sitting in a supervised account. Um, and then the last thing is, um, you know, when you go through the estate planning process, uh, most lawyers will also have you do a power of attorney. And that's really important, um, you know, for people who are de- financially dependent on you. So if, if God forbid, you end up unconscious in a hospital, there's big expenses that still need to be paid. Your nanny, your mortgage, school tuition, and these can, you know, really go unpaid um, for a substantial length of time. So having this power of attorney in place allows a trusted person to take over those responsibilities in a time when you can't.
0: It's a lot to take in. I, as you're saying, it I'm is. like, I didn't do a trust. I better call and get it trusted. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I mean, and it, it just, I think it, you know, it's overwhelming and people that haven't really worked in that financial area or thought about this and they're just trying to have a, healthy pregnancy and new parenthood, it's a lot to take in. So I'm glad that you yeah. I say that over and over <laughs> because I'm like, oh my God, I didn't do a thrust. Like I'm stuck <laughs> on that. Um but I'm glad that you're able to map this out so that it could be done a little at a time, like you could do life insurance and then you could do the will, you know, so if someone's hearing this, they don't have to think I better get this done all next week. Like they can no, do No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I, I
1: met someone recently who has three kids and the day before she left for a big international trip with her husband, she realized, Oh shoot, I haven't done any of this stuff. And she did it then. So, you know, it's, put it on your list and you get to it when you get to it. But if you can just tackle one thing at a time, that's great. And even just being aware that, you know, when things settle down, you don't have to do it with a two week old, but, um, they're good things to put on the to-do list for when, when you have a little bit more time.
0: Oh, you really laid all this information out so well. Is there anything that I didn't bring up that you think our listeners should think about for their financial future as parents? I I mean, I think this was a great overview. Um,
1: the only other thing I would say is there's a, a website that I write for called Savvy Parents. The website is savvy-parents.com, and it was actually started by an estate attorney. And her goal was to make it a resource for parents to make smart financial and legal decisions. She has different people writing about topics, you know, from childcare care to uh, financial and legal matters to real estate. Um, so that can be a good resource as well. Um, and I think you'll post my information, but I'm happy to chat more, answer any questions. Um, if anyone thinks of anything else,
0: yes, absolutely. We'll put the savvy parents website, um, there we'll put this Solaris group website and your email. So if this is getting people in a panic of, Oh my gosh, I haven't done enough, or I have questions, or I better start an emergency fund or I better start to save for college. They can reach out to you. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Amy. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Okay. Bye. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, prenatal yoga center offers an 85 hour yoga Alliance certified program based on our three pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three month immersion program in New York city. For those who cannot attend this training Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations, holding our training at hosting studios, where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together, we also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care.